Get ready for a deep dive into the world of risk management to find out if simply filling out a questionnaire or telling your advisor that you're conservative is enough to truly set you up for success. And how often clients' perception of risk is different than the reality of their portfolio mix. That and more coming up today on this episode of Retire Smarter. Hey, welcome to another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here with Tyler Emmerich, Wealth Advisor, Certified Financial Planner, and a Chartered Financial Analyst at True Wealth Design, offices in Northeast Ohio, Southwest Florida, and the greater Pittsburgh area. But from wherever you are, you can listen to this show and work with the team remotely if you'd like. Go to truewealthdesign.com if you want to find out more information on how to do that. Tyler mentioned we're talking about risk and seeing how that aligns with our perceptions on today's show. Going to be a good one. Can't wait to dive into it all. Tyler, it is great to talk with you again. You sounded a little sad when we first connected this morning to do the show. It's a little bit of the winter doldrums got you. You thought at this point the groundhog was supposed to not see that <laughs> shadow. Lied. We were supposed to have spring <laughs> and sun. and It's just not happening yet, huh? No, not, not happening yet. But uh, the family did uh, get out to uh, uh, visit um, some of our extended family um, down south. Uh, we're up in the uh, Cleveland area, and um, most of my family and my wife's family are down in the Columbus uh, Dayton area, which is, uh, for those not familiar, maybe two and a half hours, three and a half hours south of Cleveland. And uh, yeah, I got to thinking, like, man, how are we going to start out today? What's, how am I going to introduce this idea of risk and, and risk management? And the only thing that popped in my mind was, as I was uh, driving down to see the family, we were meeting them for lunch. And we have yet we didn't decide on exactly where we were going to go. And I don't know if I've told you on the podcast yet, but for whatever reason, I have my two little girls. I have a four-year-old uh, and a two-year-old. They love Applebee's. I don't know what, where that came from, okay. why. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I maybe have mentioned that that before. But my whole ride down to Columbus, I'm trying to figure out how I can tell these two little girls that we're not going to go to Applebee's <laughs> and we're going to go somewhere else and how I can present it to them to get them excited so we don't go the opposite direction, have just a terrible drive and a terrible lunch. Uh, when we get there, and I'm thinking, boy, that's a that's a perfect example of me trying to manage my risk and uh, how this lunch is going to go. I don't know if you've been there before, but boy, that's the only thing that kind of popped in my mind. That is too funny. Um, I have uh, m- mine is a little bit more of a different and, and funny, you know, kind of perspective um, with my my in laws. They are more well. They're they're from Vietnam, and so they're just. This is. I'm I'm more uh, cultured now at this point, Tyler. But in my early <laughs> days, in my early days as a youngster, and and getting to know your in laws, whenever it would come to go eat somewhere, they were always picking places that I would never have picked before, and so it was always a risk mm-hmm. to leave with them in control. So much like <laughs> much like a risk for yes. your daughters to leave with you in control of the dinner spot. Um, they they <laughs> introduced true. me to to some hole in the wall kind of places, and sure. I appreciate them now, boy. They got the best, you know, the best food. And uh, but okay. when you're a person who's not used to eating ethnic food and you're getting dragged to the mm-hmm. holes in the wall and you're like, boy, I don't know about this. <laughs> sure. It could be very hit or miss, I'm sure. Hit, um, hit, or, hit or miss. Yeah, a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were plenty of wins. So, so where did you end up and, and, did, and did you successfully make it through disappointment? 
Well, uh, I, I did. Um, I, I kind of caved and we called Applebee's and Applebee's <laughs> said it was going to be an hour. <laughs> so I was kind of forced to make the decision and we ended up in a, a BJ's. <laughs> okay. So basically the same thing. So, right? Yeah, basically the same thing. Not much different at all. Difference yep. at all. But, Ruby uh, Tuesday yeah, for, or a for, Chili's would have all done the it, trick, I think. Yes. Yeah, so for whatever reason, I built it up so much. But uh, the girls uh, you know, were like, oh, yeah, man, let's go. That sounds great. Nice. BJ's. As long as they got good. chicken and broccoli. Luckily, we're good. They're so, good. They're good. Uh, yeah, what no is complaints. it about Applebee's? Because I had the same thing when I was a kid. Loved Applebee's. Did you? Okay. Yeah. But I probably haven't oh, eaten it one in 20 years now, you know? Oh, I gave it a bad rap, right? I, I, I went probably 20 years without going too. But yeah. uh, for whatever reason, man. It, um, you know, they're, but growing they're up, we always it. went to the Applebee's yeah. all the time. It was our, <laughs> it was our place to hit up. But, um, yeah, so, but this idea of risk, right. Um, and you know, how individuals kind of think of it, how we manage it. Um, you know, a lot of times I think it comes up when you start thinking about life transitions, uh, especially retirement and, you know, how they start to think about, all right, what do we need to do? Are we going to have enough money to, you know, have a long and happy retirement? How does our portfolio risk look like? And so on and so forth. So, you know, it's something that, you know, it applies to everyone in some way, shape, or form. And really just wanted to take some time today uh, on the podcast just to, you know, dive into it a little bit and, you know, talk a little bit about how, you know, the industry looks at risk, talk a little bit about how true wealth looks at risk, and then maybe get a little granular on um, some portfolio risks. And that's how I kind of see today's episode going. And boy, I'll tell you, it seems like in an industry, our industry, there is a multitude of ways uh, that advisors kind of look at families' risk and how they try to quantify it. I don't know if you've heard the old general rules, which I think I want to reach back on you on a pretty old podcast uh, yeah. Kevin did. But did he, you remember the retirement rules got awry one that he did talking about risk and trying to use yes. a general rule to, to That's do where a that old rule of 100 must, have, must live, right? When we first yes. discussed that. On the podcast, I think. <laughs> Look at you, pretty good. Yeah. So it's like, hey, the idea of taking uh, taking your age and subtract it from a hundred, and that's the amount of stock exposure that you should have uh, in your portfolio. Now, of course, you know we don't I, recommend. I like it when a rule that. is that easy. <laughs> I like it. Yes. But yeah, simplicity is good. Um, yeah. Sometimes, though, uh, we don't want to oversimplify. It can get us into uh, a little bit of trouble. And if that works, it just happens uh, by coincidence. And we think we the idea of taking a little bit more detailed approach here um, can add quite a bit of value. Um, I think another uh, way families might have run into this conversation with their advisors is the uh, sitting down with an advisor and, and they asking, well, how much risk do you like to take on? Are you conservative? Uh, you ever, ever, ever ran into that one, Walt, where it's like, hey, I'm a conservative investor or I'm an aggressive investor? Yeah, the more, the more broader uh, definitions. Absolutely, yes. Um, and, you know, inevitably, I've sat down with a number of families over the years, and there's no issue uh, with kind of, I guess, describing your risk tolerance this way. But it leaves a lot uh, to the imagination. And what I mean by that is it's not very quantitative. It's very qualitative. Because what might be conservative to you might be aggressive to me. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with individuals and, and a husband and wife and you know, the husband's idea of risk uh, might be, hey, I don't want to lose $200,000. And the 
wife's idea of risk is, boy, if we lose $200,000, Tyler, I'm going to come after you. That's ridiculous. There's no way I'd feel comfortable with that. And, you know, they're both saying, hey, we're conservative. But that definition of what conservative means to them is, is much, much different depending on you know, your preferences and where you come from. There's not too many times I've sat down in a meeting where uh, you know, the family says, yeah, we're extremely aggressive. We want to take on a whole lot of risk. It's, it's normally that default to, hey, we're pretty conservative or we're moderate and middle of the road. Interesting that you get these uh, very specific rules, but then most people have these very sort of broad approaches to the whole problem of of being a conservative or aggressive investor and then may not even have the right grasp on on what those definitions mean in the first place. Yeah, well, it's, it is. It's challenging. Um, and, and as with anything that we do here at True Wealth Design, we're, the idea of trying to take those challenging concepts um, and boil them down and getting them down into some numbers that we can actually use to help us facilitate and get you into the right situation or the right portfolio or whatever the case may be. I think there's quite a bit of value add. And, you know, as, as an industry standpoint, hey, we started with maybe these, this general rule, hey, take 100, subtract your age, and that's your stock portfolio. And then we moved on to this idea of, hey, let's put you into a, a risk tolerance uh, and kind of put a definition on, hey, are you conservative, moderate, or aggressive? And we've sort of morphed into over the years of actually now a lot of companies are taking risk tolerance questionnaires. Have you ever ran into that one, Walt, before, where you sit down and fill out a questionnaire that yeah, tells you yeah. how risky you are? Not, not only heard about that, but then like whole, whole companies and industries have kind of been created around helping someone determine their risk level or tolerance and, and all sorts of different other buzzwords, right? It, it is, yes. And, and the idea of those questionnaires is to really take the mystification out of, hey, am I conservative or am I aggressive? And try to ask you tangible questions around, well, what's your time horizon? What's your comfortability with losing money? What did you do during maybe the last market downturn? And through these questions, um, try to get a framework or an idea for what type of risk level you should be taking uh, with your portfolio. A lot of times they'll take all those questions and then kind of give you a score and that score will kind of identify where you fall on the range of, of risk. And I think these things really are good in theory and certainly they can be a, a starting point. But as with anything, I think you need to take it maybe one or two steps further to truly hone in and find that portfolio that's going to be right for you. Because just as anything else, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get swayed with just purely by the way some of those questions are worded, you know, it might sway my answer one way or the other, or, um, you know, push me in a direction that maybe doesn't, you know, meet exactly uh, the way that I feel. And sometimes, I mean, our industries are very highly regulated, which is, you know, a good thing. But I feel like some of these firms are using these almost as a CYA uh, to, make sure that they're covered and okay um, and you know sometimes can be used to push some products that maybe doesn't quite fit uh, the family's needs or the investor's needs but hey they have that questionnaire to lean back on to say hey look you filled this out and you know this tells me that you know this is an appropriate investment for you I'm not saying of course everybody uses them that way Walt but you do got to be a little bit careful on how we apply these things and how we are using them in the framework to you know set yourself up and set your family up for uh, success going forward. Interesting that you can kind of get these risk numbers in different ways, but then you can use that information in different ways as well. So even if you got the same risk number, let's say, as another uh, advisor, you might actually choose to utilize that information a little bit differently, even if it's the same number. 
Sure, absolutely. Well, and that, that leads us to a, a wonderful segue on, well, hey, how do we do it here at True Wealth Design? And what do we feel like is probably the best path uh, to get you to a place to feel comfortable about the amount of risk uh, that you're taking on inside of your uh, portfolio and with your investments? And no surprise here, Walt, we got to start with a financial plan. Have you heard that one before? <laughs> it always goes back to the plan. We know that. You got it, <laughs> right? And you know, people tend to hire us when they get serious about retirement, you know, tend to be in their mid 50s. And they're coming to us. And when we start working with families, you know, it's very important for us to have some type of basis to make these decisions off of. And in our idea of our framework, that's starting with some type of financial plan uh, to help us with that. And we've done a multitude of episodes on, you know, our financial planning process. But uh, for those of you that maybe haven't heard this term before financial plan or, or trying to figure out, well, hey, what is Tyler thinking about here? In its most basic form, what a financial plan is, is sim- simply taking your assets, taking an idea of your goals and your spending and what you're trying to accomplish, and just extrapolating that out over the next 20, 30 years and using that extrapolation to run tests to try to figure out and draw inferences from, well, how good of a place are you in? And what are some of the pitfalls and some of the um, obstacles that you're going to have? have to come up and deal with as you think about a long, happy, healthy retirement. Um, you know, these things can be everything from, hey, we got a big car purchase coming up down the road. How do we plan for that? So cash flow related. They can be tax related. You know, the financial plan as we start to run that projection and take that thousand foot view, we're going to be able to glean information on how your taxes are going to change over time and starting to plan for that. But another thing or another use case uh, for that financial plan is to really use it to determine how should you be invested and how much risk should you be taking on. So this is more of us taking that approach to try to, you know, get away from the qualitative and get um, closer to that quantitative numbers driven data to help us determine. And the first number that we try to glean from that financial plan, and again, I just ran through that very quickly, there's a lot more uh, details and, and certain a lot more that goes into that financial plan. But just for us to give us an idea, one of the things that come out of that financial plan is trying to identify what your required rate of return on your portfolio is to accomplish all those goals. So when you think of required return, well, it's pretty simple there, but what pops into mind? Anything in particular? Uh, like in terms of, the, of what percentages? Yeah, what percentages or what do you think that means to you? Oh, like I, I need X amount of return on my dollars so that I can pay my bills and not run out of money no matter how long I live. You nailed it. Yeah, oh, exa- right, exactly right. right. Yeah. Hey, can you put, can you pull your money out and put it under the mattress and not earn another dime on it? Um, or That's risky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's risky. its own risk, right? Or, or do you need to get some type of return, say four, five, 6% return per year to accomplish those goals that you've set mm. for yourself? Or, so of or course if you're needing takes, 10 or 12 or 15%, then that opens up another conversation, right? It does. Well, and, and when we run through a plan like that um, to where the return required returns are high, well, then that can help us drive into a conversation of, well, hey, what are your spending goals? When are you trying to retire? What are these actual goals? And how can we work the plan to fit it into what you're uh, trying to accomplish, whether that's you work a little bit longer, you save a little bit more, whatever the case may be. And of course, the earlier that we do that, well, the more time that we have to kind of circle back and try to get us to where we want to be. But that required return number, I think, is extremely impactful and very helpful as we're trying to identify and think about how much risk uh, we should be taking on. Because, well, if we need to get 
four or 5% return on our money, then certainly we can't leave it in cash and be able to accomplish that historically, as you had mentioned before. So it really helps us and gives us a starting point uh, for that portfolio construction and identifying that proper stock bond and other investment mix. Now, the other thing that we look at um, and we derive from that financial plan after we have the required return is we're going to look at your financial capacity. And I like to think of this as um, almost as in the terms of like lifestyle risk. Well, what do I mean by that? It's essentially the idea of, well, when we run your financial plan, what's the risk that you're going to need to adjust your goals, adjust your spending? You know, is there scenarios that we run that come back and say, hey, you know, you might need to cut your travel short, you know, a few years. Hey, you might need to adjust what you're planning to gift here or whatever the case may be. We call it lifestyle risk. And for those individuals that have a very high required rate of return, to make their plan work, they're going to have more of that lifestyle risk uh, inherently inside of their plan. Because if returns don't go their way, or they retire into a bad market, because we all know that, you know, those average annual returns are not linear. And this, this sequence of how you get your returns is very, very important. I mean, you could ask individuals that retired back in 2008, 2009 into the last great financial crisis and how much pain, if your portfolio loses quite a bit early in retirement, how much that can uh, adjust and change those financial plan results. So we want to test that and we want to look into that to see how does your plan look and how much uh, financial capacity uh, do we have in there? or What's that risk, again, uh, that you'll need to adjust the those goals. And the way we do that is through a bear market test, which is simply us taking your financial plan and saying, hey, what if you do retire into a very poor market? What if you retire into a 2008? What if we retire into a March of 2020 when we uh, learned about COVID and the market dropped by 30%? How does that impact your plan results? And do you have to, or is there a risk of you having to adjust your spending goals or your financial plan in some way to kind of make it work and make sure that those results stay successful? A lot of different angles as usual that you've got to kind of analyze and, and figure out. And it all kind of, it seems like you can kind of test it off of somebody's risk level, whether that be a feeling or an actual number that, you know, has been, you know, created um, through different conversations and, and tests and those kinds of things. You're kind of always mm-hmm. putting the plan through that litmus test of how it how it responds to that risk. Hey, if, if our required rate of return is a lot lower that tells us right there that we don't need as much risk to accomplish our goals, where we're moving into a riskier situation if that requirement is higher, and that changes the dynamic of the conversation a lot. It does, and it really helps you hone into, well, where should you be from a risk standpoint? And what we like about it is it really starts with the numbers, and then what that allows us to do is once we communicate where a family or a client is uh, in regards to those required return numbers and how does the results look when we run that bear market test, and then what we can do is shift the conversation to more of a qualitative questions and more of that, hey, what are you comfortable with? What is a risk tolerance? And there's a multitude of ways that we can drive that conversation. You know, I mentioned a couple questions before where, hey, how would you behave, you know, if the stock market sold off or, or how did you behave in 2008 or how did you behave in March of 2020? You know, did you sell? Did you change investments? But, you know, I tend to think of it in a little bit more concrete terms and really think of it and find it helpful to say, all right, hey, let's test your portfolio now 
and let's say, well, if a 2008 happened, how much in dollars and cents would your account have likely dropped, right? Was it a, would it drop by 100 grand, 200 grand, 400 grand? And really hone in on, okay, well, did you know, one, that your portfolio has that level of risk to where you could potentially drop by those dollar amounts? And then two, all right, let's explore how you would feel about it and how you would approach that with the thought in mind that, hey, maybe you're in retirement now, um, or maybe you have other spending goals that are out there that we need to you know, weigh against it. I find that instead of speaking in you know, percentage drops or possibilities, when we truly look at it from a dollars and cents number, you know, it hits a little bit home and makes it a little bit more real. So we start with that uh, quantitative approach, what's that required return? How much would you potentially, would the plan results be okay if you experienced a bear market? Um, so that's your risk capacity. Uh, and then finally ending up with that emotional side and the comfortability of volatility and, and seeing your accounts go up and down. Of course, while nobody likes seeing their account go down, uh, but we need to kind of explore, well, how does that fit into your overall investment strategy and retirement plan? All great points across the board. Tyler, anything else we need to know about risk in this evaluation? Sure. So as we kind of think about um, risk, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and look at it through the lens of portfolio construction okay. and actual underlying investments that you're using inside of the portfolio. So I'm sure you've run across the term diversification before. Is that oh, fair? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And another one of those things, kind of like risk, where people can have different definitions or, or interpretations sure. of what makes up diverse, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the whole idea here is when you take a look at your portfolio and you get down into a little bit more granular view of the nuts and bolts of the investments you're using, you know, when you look at that at risk and exposure, um, the diversify, if you have diversification, well, s some things will act differently um, during different market conditions. So, each investment uh, that you're using is put into the portfolio thoughtfully to help really smooth out your ride over a longer time horizon. So if you have less diversification, you're likely going to be bringing in more volatility to your portfolio. So more higher highs and lower lower lows. And by having a diversified portfolio, it's meant to, again, kind of smooth out that ride. And then in turn, you know, have higher expected return over the long run. Yeah, I think back to an individual that I, I literally just met with last week, and I'd like to use him as a little bit of a case study here. Um, because when he came in, we started talking a little bit about his portfolio um, and what he was using to diversify. And he was very, very happy with uh, the portfolio in general. He actually had a very simple portfolio where he just had two ETFs. Uh, and for those of you that don't know what an ETF is, it's just called an exchange traded fund. It's very similar to a mutual fund, if you've heard that term before. There are certainly slight differences, but you know, an ETF is simply put, it's a, you know, a vehicle where you can put your money into it and the ETF will invest it for you based off whatever objective uh, that it has. So in this individual's case, well, he had two ETFs, one that was a stock ETF and one that was a bond ETF. And ETFs are good vehicles to use. They're generally pretty low cost. And most individuals think of them as being pretty diversified. And when we got to talking, uh, this individual was actually using an S&P 500 indexed fund or ETF for the stock exposure inside of his portfolio. And again, I'm sure most individuals have heard that term S&P 500, but it's essentially an index of 500 U.S. companies. Okay. And when you think 500 companies, I think a lot of people, ding, 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 would be like, okay, hey, that's 
probably pretty diversified. Diversified, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But as with anything, you kind of peel back the onion a little bit and get down into the details. This is where details matter. You know, if you look at the S&P 500 and you hear it on the news all the time, most individuals look at that as saying, well, hey, that's a good gauge for how the U.S. stock market is doing in aggregate. So if it's up, hey, it's a good market. If it's down, the market is, is negative. And, you know, you go back to, say, the beginning of 2023 over the last, you know, we're, we're recording here at the end of February. So that's almost 14 months ago. The S&P 500 is up over 30%. Pretty good number, right? Well, <laughs> 30%. Not we will take shabby. 30% all day long, right? Well, you got it. I mean, historically speaking, the S&P 500 is average somewhere around 10%. So significant outperformance. Um, but what a lot of individuals I, I don't think understand is how that index actually works and how it reports that performance. And what I mean by that is the S&P 500 index is what's called a market cap weighted index. Said another way, the bigger companies represent more of the performance that comes through it. So for example, about 85% of that return since January of last year has come from the top 10 biggest companies in the S&P 500. So there are 490 other companies that represent a much, much smaller of that overall performance. So I would argue that when the vast majority of your performance is coming from just a couple handfuls of companies, well, it might not be quite as diversified as what you might expect. Uh, another way for us to think about this is there is uh, an S&P 500 equal weighted index. That is the exact same 500 companies, but this index actually has an equal representation of performance across all 500 companies. And we go back over the same time period, you know, January of 2023, so 14 months ago, uh, that index is up just under 15%. So it is half the performance of the S&P 500. So I think you can see how that performance has very much been driven by, you know, 10 very large companies that represent or that are entangled in that 500 uh, in the S&P 500. Now, that, that's why there's so much focus on those big companies. And when you watch the mm-hmm. in, you know investment news channels and, and they always talk about the big you know they all have seem to have a different definition but the big three they or the do. big five or the fang stocks or just yes, these uh, days huh? just what's an nvidia doing right like <laughs> nvidia yeah what is nvidia doing yeah I, the, the last one i heard was the magnificent seven right the big seven tech companies yeah and you know i i, I had a there was a nice article that i ran into last month that was comparing the the magnificent seven or these big companies that represent the s&p 500 and that have driven a lot of the performance over the last 14 months and can't kind of comparing them to the nifty 50s i don't know what well, i'm going pretty far back on you, you heard of the nifty 50 nifty 50 you might have one on me here nifty okay yeah okay. that's uh you go, you go back to the 70s um the nifty 50 were 50 stocks that in the early 70s really benefited from a bull market and uh, they were you know termed to set it and forget about it never sell stocks okay um so everyone thought they were essentially too big to fail how um, many of those are still and, around these days <laughs> yeah, very, very few. It didn't take it didn't even take this long. By the mid 70s, they went through a bear market and that group lost um, a significant amount. So this article was kind of referencing those and trying to draw similarities to what we're experiencing here. You know, at any time that we go through a, a period where a select number of companies, in this case, very large companies do s- significantly well, you really got to ask yourself and say, hey, 
how do I want to participate in that? And is that adding or am I being appropriately diversified if I have you know, a, a big concentration of my performance coming from you know, a, a couple handfuls of stock? And, and while there might be a few listeners out there where actually they're just saying, well, why do we want to be diversified? Why wouldn't we just want to kind of jump on this bandwagon? Most indexed investors that are putting money in their S&P 500, they are. Why should we uh, take a more diversified diversified approach. And I think to, to answer that, you just got to expand uh, your time horizon a little bit more. And, you know, if we go back over the last 20 years and kind of compare the S&P 500 index versus that equal weighted S&P 500 index we spoke of, uh, the equal weighted index has outperformed it on a year in and year out basis by about a half a percent per year. Hmm. We expand our time horizon out a little further for the last 30 years and the equal weighted uh, perform has outperformed by even more than that on a per year basis. So that diversification really shines when you expand out your time horizon. And for most retirees, you're going to have a long, happy, healthy retirement, we hope. So your time horizon could be 20, 25, 30 years. So us getting caught up into some of these short-term trends, we just really need to be mindful of. Now, when I uh, go back to that individual that I had met with and we'd had that conversation because again his stock exposure was just in that one ETF the S&P 500 uh, index fund you know the other thing there that we need to be mindful of is those are just U.S. companies um, he had no other market exposure no international no emerging markets and so on and so forth so you know you think about that from an overall portfolio construction standpoint and the risk that's inherent there you know we don't have to go too far back in history to 1999 to 2009, where, you know, we call that the lost decade in US large cap stocks, where, you know, on average, the S&P 500 had negative annualized return. You know, what I don't know about you, but I couldn't imagine being so concentrated in, you know, just seven companies are giving me most of my performance. But then, hey, if I look at it, I'm just in the US and I don't have any diversification. And then we run up on another decade where, you know, US does not outperform like we've seen in the more recent history. You're really kind of, you know, giving yourself a concentrated portfolio there and not taking that diversified approach, which is over time proven to be the winner. Yeah. Uh, two comments. One, uh, this is from an older article, so the it may have changed since then, but this is from 2019, so only a couple of years ago. Okay. 22 of the Nifty 50 companies were still members of the S&P 500, so more than so half, half had dropped away from the S&P. A few <laughs> more than that still existed, but they don't trade on the S&P anymore. So okay. there you go. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Second comment, uh, back to just what you were laying out for us there. It sounds to me just like we really, like most investors, I'm imagining a lot of people that you meet with in the office, one of the big things you've got to do is just recalibrate this whole conversation and viewpoint of what diversification means. Like people need to kind of just drop their previous, preconceived notions of diversification and really redefine that, especially as they approach retirement. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, and most importantly, it's just having an understanding and an awareness that that's how your portfolio is. So that way you can make decisions that put you in the best path going forward. And this isn't just a, a one-time deal. Well, I mean, I think the last thing we'll hit on here as we're kind of wrapping up the pod is basically saying, hey, you know, when you look at your portfolio, it's not a one-time thing. You know, that ongoing management is extremely important. You know, there are a, a few things that I'll just kind of rattle off here to kind of keep in mind. But, you know, I'd spoke earlier about required rate of return and what rate of return your plan needs to, you know, be successful and accomplish your goals. Well, one thing that 
doesn't take into consideration is that sequencing of returns and that understanding that if you do have very poor market performance early on in retirement when you're drawing money from your portfolio, there is inherent risk there um, and you know quite a bit more an outside risk as well, depending on how your portfolio is actually allocated and where you're actually pulling that money from inside the portfolio to get the money you need to spend and live your life and so on and so forth. We call that sequence of return risk um, and that is something we talk about on a day in and day out basis with the families where we're starting going through that retirement plan and developing that financial plan and that cash flow uh, and distribution planning to understand, hey, where is your money going to come from? How are we going to get it? And what investments specifically are we going to pull from if we were to experience a market downturn? And then kind of to build off of that a little bit, um, we don't want to forget about the importance of rebalancing that portfolio. Um, I'll keep going back to that individual that I had met with and we had talked about his, maybe he had a little bit of a diversification problem there with the stocks that he was using in that one ETF. But also another thing to consider is, well, his fund was up almost 30%, his stock ETF, and he had not gone in and rebalanced it. So if you kind of look back at the risk that he had started 2023 risk, at and then what his risk of where his portfolio is now that's a big difference right when when you have parts of your portfolio that have major run-ups like that you need to make sure that you're peeling off those returns and diversifying that way if we were to go off a cliff and the stock market were to have a substantial fall you know you're not going to fall disproportionately so rebalancing in that ongoing management is extremely extremely important from a risk management standpoint to ensure that your portfolio does not get too risky. Um, and it can go the other way too. Well, I mean, you look back on March of 2020, when COVID came, and the stock market dropped by about 30% in one month, you know, if you're not managing that, and you don't go in and rebalance the portfolio, when it had it snapped back, and you know, the portfolio snapped back very quickly during that time period, it only took about a few months to get back up to where it was. But if you didn't go in and rebalance through that, you're, you're not going to come back nearly as fast as what you had dropped. But in rebalancing is a huge tool from a risk management standpoint. And then the final thing I'll say, as we're kind of looking at risk from this portfolio lens is once you have your required return, once you have your risk capacity from a plan standpoint, and then you think you have an idea on diversification, and you've done all this work kind of reallocating the portfolio, I think the next step is to certainly be thoughtful of future return expectations, and how the relative performance of stocks and bonds and the outlook that we've had, right? I mean, you come up on, you know, the last 14 months, you know, the S&P 500 up, you know, 30%, the equal weighted one up 15, you know, stocks have potentially gotten pretty expensive. Um, you know, the question is, is are you using that information to make sure that you're adequately diverse? diversified and being thoughtful on, well, how much should I have in stocks and how much should I have in bonds? We can't time the market, uh, but we certainly can be thoughtful on how we have our allocation and you know the market environment that we're in. All great points. And I really appreciate your perspective on this, Tyler. Thanks for walking us through these really important considerations from risk to rebalancing and diversification and uh, kind of the three big buzzwords that came out of today's episode, mm-hmm. along with your attempt to trigger the uh, egghead alert, I think, when you were <laughs> I stayed away. dropping in some. Uh, the, but I felt like you couldn't help it because these ETFs and mutual funds sometimes have really long names, right? Sure. They do. They <laughs> the do. The S&P 500 equal weighted index ETF. 
uh, call your grandma, see if she can help you out, and uh, something, something financial yes. plan. <laughs> some it can feel that screen. way sometimes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The, the spider, you know, this, this, and that. And then the acronym is, yes. stands for 18 other words. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to hold you accountable for, uh, for what those are called. Uh, but no, great points across the board. Really appreciate it. And if you have questions about anything that you heard today, you want to actually find out perhaps what kind of investor are you? Are you a conservative or aggressive investor? And is that aligned with what you should be for where you are in life and what your retirement plans and goals are? Do you have a good grasp on how diversified your portfolio is? Are you operating with a great definition of diversification? These are the kinds of questions that Tyler Emmerich, Kevin Krosky, and the great team at True Wealth Design are going to help you walk through discover and learn about on the way to putting together a successful financial and retirement plan. So if you'd like to set up a time to meet with Kevin and Tyler and the team, all you have to do is go to truewealthdesign.com. Click the Are We Right For You button to schedule your 15-minute call. Again, all you have to do is go to truewealthdesign.com, or you can call, if you prefer that method, 855 TWD plan, 855-TWD-PLAN. You can find all that contact information in the description of today's show as well. Well, thank you for all the help, Tyler. Appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, had a great time. Enjoy yourself. Go find an Applebee's for the girls. uh, Will do. (laughs) (laughs) Take care of yourself. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time on Retire Smarter. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.